Good morning, gentlemen. I know you're here for the same reason I am, just to have a place to warm up. Glad you stopped along the way, and while you're warming up, we'll look at the Bible. We've been looking at Job, which is a classic case in the Bible of reflexive or reflective wisdom. We've seen from the Proverbs, we get the principles for living. They really generally work about 95% of the time, but sometimes they don't seem to be immediately applicable. We can't make sense out of this life through just the Proverbs. We need the books of Ecclesiastes and Job to fill in the blanks. And we've seen that the big blanks are filled in because there's a drama happening in heaven to which we are often uh, blind. There are things going on in the heavenly courts that sometimes we don't know about. And we saw in the case of Job, who was a righteous man, who was, a, who was blameless, uh, who was very successful. He was a very wealthy person. Life seemed to be going well for him. He, was inter- he had international fame, obviously. And all of a sudden, it seems that all hell just breaks loose in his life. And there seems to be no good reason for it. And his wife is so convinced of it that, that uh, Job is a cursed man. She just said, why don't you just curse God and die? Just get it over with. And uh, after he had lost all of his family and all of his wealth and all of his health, he's stuck with his wife. That's the comment she makes. And he says to her an interesting phrase, you remember, in verse 10 of chapter 2. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In other words, Job knows right from the beginning that our role is to fear God and to love Him, to receive whatever He gives to us, as he says later in this book. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Our task is simply to trust him. So Job gives a very important lesson to his wife. You would hope that any time you're suffering, and by the way, uh, I'm so glad that I've got such good friends to come speak. And Cole Huffman was here last week. I know did a good job talking about Romans 8.28 and sort of filling out from a New Testament perspective some of the things we've been talking about, that God's in control and we can trust him, uh, including when the bad things come. But one would hope that when you get in trouble, that you'll have good friends to help you. And I'm sure Job was kind of hoping the same thing. Well, I'd like for you to look at the end of chapter 2 with me. And Job has three very famous friends, actually four we'll see uh, later on in the text. And these friends are known not to be very wise friends. You know that because the advice they give is, is, as John Calvin says in comparing Job's friends with Job, he says, Job's friends argue a very poor case very well. Job argues a very good case very poorly. And uh, so neither of them actually win. But we know from their arguments that these, these men are not very helpful, okay? But they start out so well. And it's important for us to look in verses 11, 12, and 13 of chapter 2. That's all we're going to spend our time on. Just to see how these men start out, largely because of the traditions of their culture that make them very seemingly wise friends in the beginning. And let's look and see what they do that's so helpful uh, before they open their mouths. Uh, and then it's not helpful too much anymore. But let's look at the things that they do that are, that are really commendable and things that we would want to emulate in our own lives. Let's look at Job 2, 11 through 13 as we see how Job's friends respond to his disaster. Verse 11. When Job's three friends... Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite heard about all the problems that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, 
They could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. When we are hurting, our wise friends can do some very helpful things. And it reminds us of that text uh, that we studied previously when we talked about wise friends last semester. In Proverbs 17, 17, where Solomon says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Friends love at all times, and a real brother is brought into this world to help us in our adversity. And so we want to see how when we're hurting or when others are hurting, wise friends can do some things that are extremely helpful. Now let's look first of all at the first part of verse 11, and we'll see that wise friends initiate their service. They take the initiative. When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement. First thing we notice is they don't wait to be asked. Now Job was an international figure. He was very wealthy. He was one of the wealthiest men in the entire East. He was uh, Bill Gates and Billy Graham all wrapped up into one. He was a very holy and righteous person, but he was extraordinarily wealthy. And people in neighboring nations knew about Job. And because of trade and commerce, no doubt, Job had made some friends from around that entire region, around all the Arabia. And these, these names... Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. We don't know exactly where they come from, but we have certain hints. Some of these names uh, look like Edomite names, so that they would have been over near the, the land of Israel. Uh, some of these names look like Arabian names, and they were in different parts of that part of the world, but from many hundreds of miles away. People knew Job. He was, he was very famous, and he had some of these international friends. And you'll notice that when they heard that something like this, this disaster had happened to Job, they took the initiative. They didn't wait till an invitation went out from Job, would you please come console me? They heard about him and went. And I have to say that this is one of the most important things you can do, is simply take the initiative. Do something. Take the initiative. We'll see what some of those things can be in a moment. And then notice B, that, that uh, we recruit the team. They met together by agreement. Here are three guys. Maybe they had an accountability group. I don't know. The three guys who together covenanted they were going to go together in caravan to go see Job. I don't know. I'm sure you've all had this experience. Maybe when someone, something happened in your life that was very difficult. Maybe it was the funeral of someone you loved. And there some guys showed up. Uninvited. Unexpected. And they just took the initiative. You ever had that happen to you? I've had that happen to me on several occasions. It's remarkable what that does to your spirit. And these guys just took the initiative. They didn't wait to be asked. They recruited the team together, and they took off and went. They had a strategy. What a wonderful thing to do. So, guys, if you want to help somebody who's facing a disaster, simply take the initiative and pull the team together of not just yourself but other friends that you know and Take the initiative. Let's look secondly in verse 11. You'll see that wise friends 
intentionalize their strategy. They, we are told that they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. They had a strategy. They were intentional. First thing is, go. Do something. Execute. Go there visibly, physically. It's what uh, pastors call the ministry of presence. You think you don't have anything to offer. You don't have anything to say. You don't know what to do. You feel like an idiot. Uh, you feel awkward. Just go. And your physical presence uh, means a ton. And these guys knew they could send gifts, they could send notes, all of which would be appreciated. But when you send yourself, that's the most important thing of all. So go. Go. Secondly, notice that they sympathized. And this word sympathy is an interesting one in the Hebrew. It means to shake your head or rock your body in grief. So in other words, you're just... You're feeling some of the pain. You are saying, this is awful. And you are offering your sympathy, your emotional output to that person. And so there's actually, there was a physical movement here. They, they went simply to go, they, they went with the intention to go with their physical bodies to be present and to show that they understood how deeply miserable this was. And then the other word that's used here is comfort. They go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And comfort just simply means to ease the deepest pain. So obviously you're going to feel frustrated. And if you're not willing to feel frustrated and incompetent and useless, then don't plan to go. Because you are incompetent and useless, basically. There's nothing you can do. Except that you can sympathize. You can go, oh... And then you can desire in your heart and have intention to bring consolation to remove the deepest pain of that person's agony, whatever you can do. You're simply at their service. And believe me, you will feel like there's not a whole lot you can do. But would you notice how wise these guys started out? They got off their keisters and they took the long journey with all the time and expense that that would cost them. And they showed up simply to sympathize and to do whatever they could to relieve the inner pain as well as the outer pain of their friend Job. That was heroic. Let's give these guys credit where credit is due. So wise friends will initiate their service and wise friends will intentionalize their strategy. They know what their, what their job is. They know what they're trying to do. Now thirdly, let's look at verses 12 and 13a. Wise friends identify with the sufferer. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. Notice the first way in which they identify with the sufferer. They absorb the bad news. They got there, and you can only imagine what happened. They, they kind of remembered probably where Job hung out, where his estate was. They got directions to get there. And they get to Job's huge estate and they find that his dwelling place had been demolished and all they find is rubble. They look over on the hillside and they see ten gravestones for Job's children. And they say, well, where's Job? Well, he's over at the city dump. So they go over to the city dump and there's Job, no hair, 
boils all over his body, lost tons of weight. He's sitting in the garbage. The dung is on fire, and the wild dogs are around, and they're just absolutely astonished. This is not the Job that they saw the last time they were in his home. So they absorb the bad news. And uh, that's exactly what you have to do if you're a wise friend. You simply need to get the story. You need to hear the story. Oftentimes, if I'm visiting uh, a widow who was just widowed this week, uh, if I wasn't there in the hospital when, them, when everything happened, I'd just sit down and say, tell me the story. What happened? And he, he seemed to be so healthy just last week. Oh, pastor, he was. And then she'll tell me in detail everything about that week and what led up to his death. Now, I know every time you go to sympathize with someone, you're not close enough to ask that question and get the whole story. But if you're a very close friend, you need to get the story. Just tell them what happened. What, what brought this on? Uh, and you need to get the story so that you can absorb the bad news and hear how bad it really is. If your friend is in financial disaster, one of the kind, kindest things you can do is just simply sit down and listen to the bad news and listen to that person give you the rationale of how he got there. And that enables you to enter into the misery of that person. So one of your wise ministries with your suffering friend is simply to get the story and enter in so that you can absorb the shock, some of the shock of what's happening. I'm, I'm convinced that as we do that, that's part of what it means to carry each other's burdens. We're, we're not going to be turned away from people. Uh, and so often when someone is in the hospital, they've lost, you know, 80 pounds, they look terrible, they don't even smell very good, and we're just turned away from them. We don't want to go see them. I don't, I don't like to go to the hospital, we say. It depresses me. Well, of course it depresses you, you idiot. <laughs> you know, how much do you think it depresses the guy who's sitting in bed? It depresses him a whole lot. You know, some people say, I don't like to go to nursing homes. You know, it just depresses me. Well, of course. And that's the whole point of going, is that you take on, you absorb some of the depression of what the person must be going through. You experience it with them. And that was a wonderful thing that these men do. Once again, let's give them credit before they open their mouths. They absorbed the bad news. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They were shocked. Well, take, take the shock. Secondly, they empathized and emoted. They began to weep aloud. They didn't say, well, you know, I'm just not real good at, at emotions. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I just don't know what to do. Uh, well, I know. Some, some of us know how to cry. Some of us don't. Some of us know how to laugh. And some of us don't know how to laugh very well. But when you absorb the bad news in a person's life, you really absorb it then you, what you do is you enter into that experience in some, some way, in some way you could do it this way. Enter into that experience and imagine yourself in their place. And imagine that your, your finances are in total disaster. Imagine that your wife walked out on you. Imagine that your child just died. Imagine that you're lying on that hospital bed. And experience some of the emotions the feelings of what that person is now experiencing. That's what it means to empathize. Sympathy is to offer consolation for someone in sorrow. Empathy is to enter into the feelings themselves so that you feel, you can actually feel what they feel. 
You can identify with your emotions, not just because you can label them, but because you're actually feeling those emotions yourself. And when it's a dear friend, if it's your child, this is almost automatic, that you enter into their sufferings and you weep with them and for them. But with a friend, sometimes it has to be cultivated. And you have to slow down and give that person your attention. You can't just breeze by. And you'll notice this was a this took months for them to do this. And sometimes it'll take a full day to sympathize adequately and empathize adequately with a friend so that you can enter into it. And if you've really entered into it, you probably are going to be moved to tears. You certainly would in a case like Job. Lost ten children, lost his health, lost all of his estate. His wife was moaning and groaning at him. So they began to weep because they empathized and they actually emoted. And you know what? If you're suffering, it is helpful. If, so, if you know that someone understands your suffering so well that they are moved to tears, it does help you because then you're assured, hey, they get it. Because if, if they don't get it, or rather, if, if they're not moved to tears, they probably don't get it because this is bad. And so the, the willingness to enter into someone's misery actually is a connection with them to let them know you understand, and it's a wonderful healing ministry for someone to be understood, especially when they're suffering. So you absorb the bad news, you empathize and emote. Thirdly, notice, you enter into their misery. Notice what they did. They tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. Now, <clears throat> this was common practice in the near ancient Near East. This is the way that you would mourn with someone. It was common practice. But just because it's common practice, let's not miss the fact that it was extremely valuable. As a matter of fact, I would say, in some ways, it was the common practices of the Near East that enabled these men to start off wisely. They just simply followed conventions that had been shaped over you know, centuries and millennia. But to tear their robes and throw dirt up in the air and let it come down on their heads is simply to say, you're torn, we're going to be torn too. You're bald and covered with boils, we're going to cover ourselves with dirt. You're dust returning to dust, ashes returning to ashes, we're dust and ashes too. You're suffering, we're going to suffer. You're out of commission, we're going to be out of commission. And it's just this total identity with the suffering of your friend that is one of the wisest things you can do. And you enter in, in a real sense, into their misery. I don't, I, we don't go, it's not our convention. <laughs> Listen, folks, don't go to the funeral home and go, <laughs> you know, that won't get it. Um, and don't get some dirt and throw it up in the air and think that you're actually going to bring comfort. You're probably just going to scandalize everybody. But we have our own conventions and our own ways of doing it. And it has to do with laying aside time, spending time with a sufferer, spending your resources in, in a way that shows that you're willing to divest of yourself to give to them. And willingness to lay aside your own career and your own ambitions in order to enter into their suffering. There's a way to do it. And it begins in the heart. Do you want to bear the burdens of your brother? A wise person does. And they, they did it in a wonderful way. I heard an illustration a real thing that happened some years ago that illustrates this point so well. There was a little girl, she was in the first grade, and I believe she was at St. Jude's, and because of the chemo, her hair was falling out. So here's a little, you know, cute little six-year-old in school, and she has no hair. Uh, 
That's humiliating, obviously. Well, she had been at St. Jude's, and she goes back to her school, and it's going to be the first day back when she has no hair. And, I, and she's going to have to face her classmates and be seen in this sort of ugly state. And she gets to the class, and every kid has a bald head. They all shave their hair so that everybody in the class had a bald head. <laughs> is that not wonderful? <laughs> that is awesome. Now, here is a class that got it. Let's just enter into the misery. Let's just throw the dirt up in the air, let it fall on our heads. Let's identify with our sister. And that's, that's the way we do it. And here's the, the theological idea that's behind it, that we all know, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We all know that it's ridiculous for us to vaunt ourselves as some sort of empire builder or some sort of a king or some sort of a handsome, healthy, wealthy person. It's all fading. It's all passing away even before your very eyes. We're all getting more wrinkly. We're all turning into, we're all eventually turning into ashes. And for some of us, I mean, if you look at a picture of me when I came here 14 years ago, I look like a young man. <laughs> it's amazing. What happened to that guy? You all just worn me out. No, actually, you haven't worn me out. I've worn me out. Uh, and earth to earth, earth, earth uh, and ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And so it's, it comes from a theological idea that it's not just Job. It's not just my suffering friend. It's all of us who are suffering together and we're in solidarity. And what it helps the sufferer to see is, you know what? I'm not alone. We're all suffering together. And we're all in solidarity as God's people. So that's what's actually happening in the comfort of it. We enter into their misery and we solidify ourselves as human beings and as brothers. And then notice, fourthly, they sit and wait. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Now, seven days and seven nights was the conventional period uh, for mourning for the dead. So once again, they were helped by their own conventions, but they were wise to keep those conventions. They just simply sat and waited. And gentlemen, when you're feeling your most awkward trying to help somebody and you don't know what to say, try saying nothing. Try just sitting. You know, oftentimes you go to the funeral home uh, before the big crowds get there, and you just find the family. They're just sitting, sitting together. Sometimes they're holding hands. Sometimes they're weeping together. Sometimes there's a little whispering going on. But they just sit. And there's a ministry of sitting and waiting. And here's why it seems so awkward. Because we want to think we can actually do something. That we can change this situation by our power. And we can't. But if we acknowledge we can't, just like the sufferer can't, then we are entering in together into our can'tness. And we're showing that we're all together in this. And we're going to wait on the Lord. So waiting has a theology behind it. Rest and sleep have a theology behind them. Recreation has a theology behind it. It is that we trust that the Lord is at work. So we can rest. We trust that the Lord is going to do something about death. And so we can sit and wait. We're going to wait for the Lord. And that's what the psalmist says. Wait for the Lord, O Israel. I said again, wait for the Lord. So 
We teach the sufferer to sit and wait. Just time out. Slow down. Chill out. Remember who we are. We are dust. Sit and wait. And these guys did that extremely well. Give them credit. Now, fourthly, uh, let's look at the second half of verse 13. And you'll notice that wise friends, (laughs) this is important, inhibit their speech. See what the text says. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They saw how great the suffering was, so no one said a word. Isn't that interesting? You'd think that the greater the suffering, the more words you would offer. Just the opposite. They saw how great his suffering was, so they didn't say a word. Now, in inhibiting our speech, could I give us five suggestions for what we do when we're trying to console or comfort a suffering friend? Number one, listen. Job didn't need a lecture. He needed love. He didn't need criticism. He needed comfort. We have two ears and one mouth. Let's listen twice as much as we talk. Just listen. As I said a moment ago, if you'll just say, Tell me what happened. Or don't say anything and just listen. And one of the most powerful ministries you can offer, you know, a good part of counseling as a pastor or as some of you are psychologists, a good part of our counseling is simply giving someone our attention and listening carefully to what they're saying. In fact, listen precisely to what they're saying and ask them follow-up questions on what they're saying so that as they give us something, we ask them to unpack it even more. And as they are able to tell their story, and as they are able to share their concerns, and oftentimes they will share God's perspective on their own suffering, and they get it right. And they become their own counselors simply because we've been willing to be the reflector. We've been willing to be the mirror. We've been willing to give the listening ear. It's amazing how healing that is. And I'm convinced that one reason the counseling business has just uh, exploded in size over the past 40 years is because we've gotten so busy we don't listen to each other anymore and we need to pay someone, you know, $150 an hour just to listen to me and listen to me well. Uh, And it's worth it. Believe me, it's worth it. So we must learn to listen very carefully. So often we're in such a hurry going to our next appointment, someone will tell us something and we, we didn't even... Hear it. Uh, FDR one time tried this out in, in a reception line in, in, the, uh, in the White House. And you know how people come through, and they're just saying hello, and they're more conscious of themselves than anything. And FDR said, uh, I shot my grandmother and she died. Well, thank you, Mr. President. That's good to hear. And he said that to about 10 people until finally came to a person who said, yeah, I shot mine too, and walked on through. But... Nine out of ten people didn't even hear what he said. I shot my grandmother and she died. Nobody even heard it. And so often you'll go through the receiving line at the funeral home and you're just so aware of how you're going to be perceived and you want to be sure that they noticed you were there and you want to be sure you get the words out right. You don't even hear what they're saying. So just slow down. Just be God's man. Just listen. And maybe just a hug or a greeting or just say, I'm really sorry. It's amazing if you just say, I'm really sorry, and then you're willing to listen. 
You're willing to absorb what they're saying to you. You're willing to enter the misery. You're willing to slow down and stop and give them your ear. It's very, very powerful. And these guys had a powerful presence with Job for about seven days. Secondly, don't explain everything. <laughs> these guys, the problem was, as soon as they opened their mouths, they, they thought there was a formula to life. They had the Proverbs all figured out, and they were going to apply the Proverbs to Job and give him a little lesson. That was their problem. They had the Proverbs, which gave them a certain formula to life, and they were going to bless Job with their findings. Don't try to explain everything. That's, that is one of the lessons of reflective wisdom, is that you can't explain everything. And you know that these guys had a defective theodicy. We looked at a biblical theodicy uh, earlier in January. That is the justification of God or the, uh, the way to look at the presence of evil and how it's all going to work out. These guys had a defective theodicy. They thought that everything is to work out in this life. They didn't figure for the next life, and they didn't figure out for the counsels of God doing something secret that we didn't know about. They had a defective theodicy, which led to a defective theology. So your defective theodicy leads to a defective view of who God is, and that was their problem. And so they, they tried to explain everything in view of this theodicy. But even if you have a good theodicy, don't try to explain everything. Don't say, well, let me just tell you what I learned in Amen about Job 1 and 2. Just be quiet. The first instinct is simply to listen. Some of you years ago may have read the, the book by Joe Bailey entitled uh, The View from a Hearse, and it was retitled later, The Last Thing We Talked About. Joe and his wife, Mary Lou, lost three sons. One, uh, after about 18 days after birth to surgery. Another one that died, the second boy died at about five years of age, because of leukemia, and then they lost another son at 18 years of age in a sledding accident. I mean, just disaster upon disaster. And uh, here is how Joe Bailey reflects upon the friends that came to him. Listen really carefully. Joe says, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except I wished he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. You see the difference? Don't try to explain everything. When we go to someone who's been suffering deeply and we try to tell them, you know, the Lord's in charge of everything and the Lord always works things out for good, these things are true. They're very true. They're foundationally true. They just might not be helpful. Because until you've entered into the misery, any formulaic answer is cheap. You walk out the door, you still have your wife, you still have your job, you still have your car, you still have your bank account, you still have your health. It's easy for you to say, all things work together for the good for those who love God 
that are called according to His purpose. It's difficult for Him to say it. And until you've been there and absorbed that pain and the person is ready to explore those mysteries of God's glorious and gracious providence, the words are not that helpful. I'll tell you this. The greatest mistakes in pastoral counseling I ever made, and I've made a bunch of them, the worst ones were the ones where I spoke words of truth too soon. Those were my worst moments. It wasn't that I spoke a lie. It wasn't that I misrepresented God or the Scriptures. But I spoke a word of truth out of season. The person wasn't ready for it. And what we need to learn is, even if a person asks us a theological question, and you think, well, here's the time for the biblical answer, you still must be very careful whether you give the answer or not. I learned this the hard way. Some grieving person asked me for a theological question, uh, for an answer, and I gave them an answer that was true according to the Scriptures. It was the wrong season in her life. And it crushed her for the next three months. I should have asked her another question that led her to another line of thinking. I should have listened more to her story. I should have asked her more questions about her grief. And I should have entered into her grief over a longer period of time before I ever answered the question she presented me with. I made a mistake. Now you say, well, you can be excused. Well, yeah, if you're inexperienced, you can be excused. If you're experienced, you shouldn't excuse yourself. Because sometimes we ask theological questions only as a way of lashing out and saying, Why, oh God? And we just needn't just cry out, Why, oh God, for a while and have somebody listen to us. And then later on, often it's a year later. Really. A year or more later. Now we're ready to study theology proper. Now, that's not always true. And maybe some of you said, no, I really wanted theological answers when I was suffering. Fine. But you better convince. If it's a wise person you've gone to, you'll have to convince them you really do need that theological answer right now. Because the most important thing to do is to listen and not to explain everything with formulaic answers. And I have to say, evangelical Christians are some of the worst. Because we believe the Bible is the Word of God and we believe that simply ministering that word for word is going to be the answer. It's not. It's ministering the truth through love. Ministering the truth through wisdom that God works His greatest miracles in people's lives. So don't explain everything. Be very careful. Thirdly, suspend judgments. The problem with these guys is that they were quiet for seven days. They, they listened, and they didn't explain everything. But when they started explaining, their explanations were either implied or explicit judgments of Job, which revealed that when they were quiet, they really weren't sympathizing with Job. They were really judging him. So even in their silence, later on, it's revealed what they were thinking. You have to be very careful with your thoughts and with your mind because eventually when the time comes for something to be said, your words are going to reflect what you were thinking. 
And here's the reason we do this. Here's the reason we judge people when they're suffering. Oh, well, financial disaster. Well, you know, if you, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned, you know, if you really put things aside and if you hadn't put everything in equities and you had a little bit in the bond market or put something in treasuries, you wouldn't be broke, you know. And you're supposed to diversify your portfolio. I mean, you're thinking all this stuff. Well, you know, I could have told you some time ago, some of those business dealings you've been involved with, I don't know, I just... You know, you go, and here's why we do it. Because we desperately want to believe that it's not going to happen to us. There have got to be rules. There's got to be a formula that if we'll follow, we're safe. And so in order to defend ourselves and to bring some sense of security to ourselves, this isn't going to happen to us, we can explain all the disasters that happened to everybody else. Here's what they did wrong. Oh, here's what he did wrong. Well, if he had done this this way, and we can fix it, and we're really saying we're the fixer, we're God. And there is no throne in heaven where things are assigned sometimes to the devil to do with no good and obvious purpose from a human perspective. We want to deny that ever happens. There's an explanation for everything, and therefore I'm protected. You're not protected. So don't explain everything and suspend your judgments. You don't know. Who was it uh, the other day who was saying they just had prostate surgery and they were walking real slowly across the street because they were a little bit sore? And the guy that was driving the car in the street came, you know, came up and honked at him because they thought they were intentionally stalling, you know, weren't trying to cross. And he said, oh, forget it. You know, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Most people don't know what they're talking about. Suspend your judgments. You don't know what somebody's been through. You don't know what the circumstances were. You don't know what you would have done if you'd been in their shoes. You don't know that. Just chill out. If you're a wise friend, you just enter. The main thing you're doing is entering into their suffering. And you don't explain everything. And you suspend your judgments. Now, fourthly, look for needs to meet. Look for needs to meet. Sometimes you're wondering, what in the world can I do? Well, you can run errands, take care of the kids, provide a meal, rake the leaves, blow the leaves, mow the grass, wash the dishes, pick up the laundry. I mean, just you can always do something. Take a gift, write a note. You can do something. So look for needs to be met. And what you do is, once again, you imagine yourself in that situation. If you're in that situation, what do you need? And you know what? I find that this is extremely powerful because hanging around East Memphis, I hear people say, you know, my group of friends just overwhelm me with their kindness. I hear that in our church all the time. My group of friends just overwhelm me with their kindness. They have so many casseroles, I don't have any room in my freezer anymore. I hear that all the time. Stop bringing casseroles. I don't know where to put them. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. May the, may the church overflow with casseroles. You know? And may the funerals overflow with attendance. And let me say, guys, I, I've noticed, I've, you know, I've been a pastor for over 25 years now, and I have noticed over 25 years a, a decline in the attendance at funerals. And it's a sign of a world that's too busy and too little caring. And I was talking to a pastor not too long ago. He came up to me and he said, I'm 75 years of age. My wife just died. I've been doing, doing funerals for 50 years. And he said, I've looked back on those funerals I've done over 50 years and I'm embarrassed. I didn't know what I was talking about. And I realized I don't know what I'm talking about either. But 
We need to try harder to learn what we're talking about. The pain is really extraordinary. And it really does mean something when you just show up. You're willing to get up out of you know, watching your football game, put on a tie, go over to the funeral home, or go over to the church, and then simply sit with the, with the person and wait on the Lord together. That's extremely meaningful. And just simply to take a hand or offer a hug or just to say, I'm sorry, is enormously meaningful. And when a whole group of people, if you're in a small church, if you're in a church of, say, uh, well, this is not so small, but if you're in a church of 400 or less, why don't you just basically make it your, your practice as much as you're able, when someone in your church dies, you're going to be there for the family. And you're going to make it part of your ministry to grieve with them. If you're in a large church, you know, a thousand or more, why don't you find some subunit in that church? In our church, it'd be the Sunday school class. And why don't you just say, if you're in a Sunday school class in our church, which is about 200 people, why don't you just say, when something happens in that class, that's mine, I got it. In other words, you, you have some definable unit of people that you are going to express your friendship to when they're in sorrow or suffering of various types. And you just make it your assignment. That's an enormous ministry. Now, fifthly, notice that we can pray. And this is not to be uh, bantied about cheaply. Don't say to someone, I'm praying for you, and then you don't pray for them. That's pretty bad. But really pray for them. And I'll tell you what I do. You know, we, our church has 3,800 adults and 1,200 children, so i got 5,000 people. I don't, I, don't, I don't go to all of our funerals. I, I can't. I'm out of town or I've got other things around here that I'm, I'm out on, and I don't, I don't perform most of those funerals. I go to some that I don't perform, but I don't go to all of them. But here's what I do with every single one of them. Anybody in our congregation is going to get a note from me, and I'm going to honestly tell them that I'm praying for them, and, and, I, pray, and I pray for them that day so that I don't lie about my prayers because I'm not that great at it. But I'll pray for them that day, and then I tell them what I prayed for. And it's a very simple thing, and I know that it's, it doesn't take a whole lot of time, so I'm not bragging about it. I'm really giving it to you as an example of sort of minimalism spiritually. You can at least do that, can't you? To offer to pray for someone and send them a note. And just get that into your cycle of being. Get that into your business. Get that into your personal plan that you have a way of doing this and figure out how to do it and systematize it so that it comes around. If you're not a particularly um, a merciful person, let's put it that way. My wife is just loaded with mercy and I'm not. Uh, so if you're like me, you'll need to have a system and a plan for doing things because it won't just come naturally to you like it does to Gail Stevens on our staff. She's just loaded with mercy. But put those things in your life and ask the Lord to make you better at it. And ask Him to make you a, a, a prayer uh, of the people who are suffering. So you see, we can inhibit our speech and do a lot of good things that are better than speech in the moment. Now, speech can come later, as I said. Sometimes it's a year later. But for that first year, likely, we're just friend, wise friends. Now, lastly, the whole point about Job and the whole point about the Bible is that we might know more about our Savior. And we see hints of Christ throughout Job, and we'll see it very explicitly in some places, but here too we see it. And we want to be sure that we understand that wise friends are actually imitating their Savior who said to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What we're really doing in being wise friends is imitating Jesus who wisely cared for us. Think about what he did. He took the initiative. He got up, left heaven, and came to our miserable place. So he left. He came and he sympathized with us. He truly felt our sorrows. He came to deliver the prisoner, to give sight to the blind, to enable the lame to walk. He, he understood our suffering. He, he actually entered into our suffering, didn't he? By taking on human flesh and, and bearing the burdens of being a human being. And then he came to comfort us, to relieve the burdens that we were bearing. That's exactly why, why he came. He came with intentionality. He came and identified with us completely by entering our misery and suffering everything that we've suffered. You have not had a suffering, nor will you ever have a suffering that Jesus Jesus hasn't first suffered. He understands completely. He is totally identified with us. He took 33 years to do it, climaxed by His wonderful sacrifice on the cross of Calvary for us. He suffered in silence for us, like a lamb who before her shears is silent, so the Lord did not open His mouth. He took on our sufferings and He... He did it without complaint. He prayed for us. When He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He was praying. He said, Satan is trying to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I prayed for you. And then you look at the high priestly prayer and He prays for those that the Father has given Him. He looked for needs to meet and He met our deepest need, which was to be reconciled with His Father and to have our guilt removed and our shame taken away. And He did it by looking for the, what He could do for us. And He certainly suspended all judgments. He said, I came not to condemn, but to save. And so he laid aside the condemnation that was due us and that he understood completely and he suspended it so that he could reconcile us to the Father and offer us up to him as a whole human being. Look at what Jesus has done for us. While we were sitting in the ash heap and all of life appeared to have gone past us, Christ took up our burdens completely. Praise be to his name. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. And He is calling us to walk in His steps and to carry out His ministry. It's an enormous privilege, an enormous task, and it's enormously helpful to our friends who will have a wise friend who knows how to care for those like Job who face the various sufferings in life. Let us pray. Father, we thank You so much for sending Your Son to be our wise friend. It is amazing to us how gracious You have been that Jesus, who could have simply condemned us and gotten it all over with, silently suffered with us and ran the errands for You that needed to be run and paid the price to bring us health and wealth and salvation that we couldn't pay for ourselves. Gracious God, we thank You. And we pray that in receiving Him once again, receiving our friend and our Savior, that we will receive that ministry of giving away Your love to others around us, especially those that are suffering. Help us as men today as we go out from this place to have in mind, first of all, Your love for us, and then to have in mind those that You've put in our lives for whom we are to be the wise friends. We ask it in the name of our friend, Jesus Christ. Amen.